WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. In the middle part of the 20th century, a pregnant Palestinian woman living in Saudi Arabia returned to Nablus, the largest city in her home country, to give birth to her son. She returned to Saudi Arabia to raise him in an English-speaking, largely American enclave, but Maad Abu Ghazala returned to Palestine each summer to stay with the family in the West Bank. He attended high school in England and college in the United States, earning a bachelor's degree in math at Notre Dame, a master's in computer science from the University of Virginia, and his law degree from Santa Clara University in California. He ran for Congress after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, in part to show other Muslim Americans that they didn't need to be ashamed of their heritage. As a lawyer, he wrote software for patent attorneys and sold off his company in 2012. By 2014, he was launching a nonprofit to rescue abandoned and abused animals from the streets of the West Bank. We'll hear about his reasons for rescuing the animals first when others were urging him to donate to existing NGOs that helped people. We'll also find out why he moved to Wilmington, North Carolina in the summer of 2023. And we'll learn a little bit today about Palestinian culture and why it's so important to him to preserve it. Maud Abu Ghazala, welcome to Coastline. Well, thanks. It's good to be here. It's good to have you with us. Tell us first, do you have any family left in the West Bank? And if so, how are they doing? Um, Most of my uncles and aunts are there still and cousins. So I have an extended family, a large number of extended family in the West Bank. And the situation is really difficult. It's really everybody's under constant threat um, of settler violence. And uh, the biggest concern is that the Gaza War will spread to the West Bank, that they might be... Um, attacked, um, you know, that the whole thing just gets out of control. So they're anxious. Um, they're surviving. Um, the economy's really had taken a nosedive right now. They, lot, most of the roads are closed most of the time, so they can't even get around. Uh, but they're just hanging on, hoping for the best. And you're in contact with them on a regular basis? Yeah. Um, as you mentioned, I, I have this uh, nonprofit. It's an animal sanctuary. that um, So I have to manage it from afar. Um, we have 65 dogs and 15 donkeys now. And so there's always some issues coming up. And I have to uh, talk to the manager there uh, to make sure all the animals are okay. And it's um, he's always trying to keep a... Keep a good face on things, that things aren't so bad. But when I ask him things like, is there enough food? I says, well, you know, I, I, there was this dog I wanted to take to the vet, but we couldn't get there because of all the roadblocks. And so we had to, and a one-hour drive took about five hours. Um, so there's there's lots of issues, but they're they're surviving. I mean, their, their bigger concern is, you know, they're for their fellow countrymen in Gaza. Um, but there there is a lot of anxiety right now. Yeah, of course there is. And we're going to talk much more about this animal rescue that you started and what's happening with the animals in a little while. But first of all, let's learn about your upbringing mm-hmm. and, and, and what 
brought you here? Your parents were living in Saudi Arabia when it was time for your mother was carrying you, and she came back to Nablus in mm-hmm. the West Bank to give birth. Why was that so important to her, to have you there? Um, well, being Palestinian, uh, I mean, some people just you know look at the Middle East and say, well, it's just all Arabs there. But there's very distinct differences between the different cultures of the different um, uh, countries there. Uh, so even though we were living in Saudi Arabia, we always knew we were Palestinian. And so she wanted me to know that and internalize the fact that I'm Palestinian. Uh, so she, she, um, when she was pregnant, about to give birth, she moved, uh, went to her grandfather or her father's house, my grandfather's house, in the West Bank, and I was born in that house um, in the West Bank, and I've I've been back there, and it's it, and they told me which room I was born in, which was um, pretty interesting to see. So that house was built around 1900, so it was old Turkish architecture, it was a beautiful home, um, and so she. Um, uh, she had me in the house. Um, I was told that my grandfather slept through the whole thing. He was told <laughs> in the morning that he had a grandson. Um, yeah, my mom's pretty tough. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that she wanted me to make to feel that I was authentically Palestinian. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Uh, you said that it's it's Turkish architecture mm-hmm. that your grandfather's house. What does Palestinian mean? Because so often we we hear a kind of blanket term about um, Arabs in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And I think to a lot of Americans who don't have roots there, I should speak for myself, I don't mm-hmm. really understand what the differences are. Well, I appreciate the chance to inform people about some of the history. Um, so... Uh, culturally, um, Arabs are divided not necessarily by the lines that you see the countries are in. Now, those lines were drawn by the British and the French uh, right after World War One or during World War I. Um, and then they carved up all these countries um, in the aftermath of the war. Uh, Palestine was a region of greater Syria. They called it Blad Shem, the northern region. Uh, Palestine, Lebanon, and Syria culturally are very similar uh, with slightly different dialects. Um, but the culture fundamentally, they're merchants primarily because um, they're on the Mediterranean. So that's, that's part of their roots is a um, um, trade with different cultures. Uh, then, so that's one set of ethnicity. Uh, you have a different one in the Persian Gulf, which are primarily, I would say, Bedouin culturally. Um, so that's a, a different, different uh, cuisine, uh, different um, traditions. Um, most of these regions are all Muslim, but Palestine and Lebanon and Syria have quite a few Christians. Uh, uh, Palestine used to have somewhere around 20% Christian population. Uh, many of them have been there for thousands of years. Um, many of them were crusaders that decided to stay there. Um, and a, another region is uh, so that's so that's two main regions, which is the um, Blad Sham, which is I guess they would call it the Levant, uh, and then you have the Persian Gulf, and the third region I guess is North Africa. You have another set of Arab countries there, and I think the main country people are aware of in North Africa is Egypt, but there's also Algeria, Morocco, Tunisia. Those are all Arab countries. And you also you identify as Muslim. I grew up Muslim. 
um, I'm more spiritual now, than, but culturally, I think it's the main part of my culture, uh, Islam. Tell us a little bit about the enclave in Saudi Arabia that was, you said it was English speaking and a lot mm. of Americans living there. Mm-hmm. Why? What, what kind of an enclave was it? It was surreal. <laughs> it really was. It was um, a little bit of America plopped down in the most opposite of America. Uh, very, uh, this was the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, which was the most um, fundamentalist uh, region in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so the people there were, it was a city that was built by Aramco, which is the Arabian American Oil Company, um, which is, they, I think they went public recently for like a trillion dollars, um, the largest company in the world. So they built, they actually built three different cities to, um, uh, to drill oil and, and um, refine oil and, and export it. And my father was, um, he actually was trained, um, he was educated as a lawyer um, but in 1948, you know, we had there was a war in Palestine, and and um, people left. My father left. He wasn't literally driven out, but um, because of the war, the dif- situation was difficult, and so he found this job with this Aram, this new company called Aramco, uh, and so they built this fence around this community that had um, uh, swimming pools. Um, women were allowed to drive, which they weren't outside the little fence. Uh, it was just like, you know, I, I, we, I grew up watching Leave it to Beaver, and I totally related to that because that's what our community looked like. But if you just stepped, you know, 10 feet outside this fence, you were in a desert uh, and are surrounded by Bedouins. Uh, so it was a, a real surreal existence because you had this purely American culture and education uh, closed off. And we weren't sure whether they were protecting us from the people outside or the other way around because... America, the American culture was very freewheeling, and we just felt we could do whatever we wanted. And then outside the fence, it was very strict. And then what led to the decision to send you to England for high school? I think my father uh, my father was very – education was really important to my dad. And, and he thought that – because the option – there was no high school-level education in this little compound that we were living in. So everybody had to go outside. Most people went to the United States, but my father wanted me to be to get the best education. And for whatever reason, he felt the U.S. Um, education, high school level education, wasn't where I was going to get the best education. So it was for me. I was really upset because I wanted to party with all my friends <laughs> that went to all these um, high schools in the U.S. But I learned so much. I mean, it really got me started really well uh, on my education uh, going to school in England. So what part of England were you in? Going? It was a small school called um, uh, King's School. Um, they actually had – it was an ancient school, like hundreds of years old. Was this in London or – was, No, it was on the other side. It was near – it was on the west coast near Bristol. Nice. Um, but in a rural area – but the, the buildings were hundreds of years old. They had one of the original copies of the Magna Carta. Um, so it had a lot long tradition, um, but super strict, where everybody had to wear a suit seven days a week. Um, anyway, so it was, it was a different experience than my friends had. You're listening to Coastline. It's an exploration with Palestinian-American and new Wilmington resident Maud Abu Ghazala. Still ahead, why he started an animal rescue in the West Bank, We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. 
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. Maud Abu Ghazala was born in what is now the war-torn West Bank, raised in Saudi Arabia and educated in the United States. He's run for Congress, started an animal rescue in the West Bank, and recently moved to Wilmington, where he's launching a food truck. But that we'll get to that. So you, you went to high school in England. When did you f- start thinking you wanted to go to college in the U.S.? And, and what did you imagine you would do? Um, actually, I wanted to go to high school in the U.S. Um, because of the experience of growing up in Saudi Arabia, where it was so strict and no freedom of, of um, movement or, or speech or anything like that or religion, I wanted the opposite. I, I craved for something the opposite, where I would be free in, in a responsible way. I wasn't an irresponsible kid. I just wanted to be free to do what I wanted. Um, so I couldn't wait until I graduated from high school. I actually cheated. I, I skipped my last year of high school, took an entrance exam when I was 17 to the U.S., and for whatever reason, I got accepted to college there. Um, Notre Dame first. Yeah, for Notre Dame, yeah. So what was your first impression of South Bend, Indiana? Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> not what I expected. Not at all what I expected. So you have to understand, you, people in America don't re- recognize how huge America is. Uh, countries in Europe and the Middle East are like the size of Rhode Island. So I had no idea there was different weather patterns in the U.S., um, so when I got there, that was my biggest shock. Um, I didn't know anybody in Indiana. Not the only person I knew, my brother and sister, were on the East Coast. Um, and so when I landed in South Bend, I, the second time was the biggest shocker because I, I left Saudi Arabia and it, when it was about 80 degrees when I got on the plane in a T-shirt. I landed in O'Hare Airport, which is the nearest airport to South Bend. Or That's in Chicago, airport. yeah. It was 50 below wind chill. 50 below yeah. with the wind chill. Yep. Yes. And so I didn't know what hit me. It's like, what am I doing here? Um, so no one told you you would need a parka and mittens? It's just one country. So, I mean, how, I thought it was California. I thought it would be warm. Right. I but you're 17 at this point. Yeah. So okay. you, you can take it. At 17, you can handle that, which I did. Um, but, yeah, that was a big shocker. And so at that point, at that age, did you know what you wanted to do with your life? Did you have a sense that you were going to go to law school at some point? Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Law, the thought of law came much later. I, I was um, – when you grow up as an Arab in the diaspora or Palestinian in the diaspora, you're, it's kind of like a, a Jewish experience in the diaspora where you're, you're thinking about what does it take to survive in a foreign country? And um, for most Palestinians, you had to be an engineer or a doctor. The idea of doing anything in the liberal arts field was out of the question. Um, Lawyers don't have the same uh, status in the Middle East as they do in the U.S. Uh, So for me, I I was adept at engineering. So I thought, you know, computer science would be the most functional thing I could do. So I was just focused on doing that. On the side, I'd always get involved in political and philosophical issues. But for me, my primary goal of it, my education, my college, was to get a degree and to get a job. And so that's when you went to UVA and got a yeah. master's in computer science. Mm-hmm. So how how did lawyering enter the picture? Um, yeah, I finally woke up. I finally realized, okay, I can survive on my own. So I said, okay, what more do I want out of life? And 
pushing paper, you know, sitting in front of a desk wasn't what I wanted out of my life. I wanted to make a difference. And so my idea of being a lawyer wasn't about money or status or anything. It was about the concept of justice. And I wanted, because of what I felt had happened to the Palestinians, the injustice that happened to them, I felt studying justice and how to um, uh, resolve issues pertaining to justice was became really important to me, more so than you know sitting in front of a computer. When did you become a citizen, and how did that work? How did that happen? Um, so it was in. I it waited until I was in college. So I actually um, it, not until college, college until I was in in law school. And law school, I actually got married to um, uh, an American citizen, and um, I went through the process. It took about uh, two or three years, and I got my citizenship. And I got, I, it was really odd, was I, I was, um, like I said, I was in law school, and I had to take an exam um, to become a citizen. Uh, and I was, you know, I knew all these questions backwards because I was in law school. So a lot of these questions were about the law, U.S. law. Um, but I failed my first time because they asked me where I was from. And I said I was from Nablus. And the guy interviewing me said, well, where's Nablus? And I said, well, it's in Palestine. He said, there's no such thing as Palestine. And he, he failed me. So he said, reapply, and in two or three months, we'll try again. And so that's how it went. So I, I, and what was funny was when I left my class in law school, I had to leave in the middle of my class, a constitutional law class. And when I told the professor saw me getting up, he says, where are you going? He was like upset that I was leaving in the middle of his class. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to take my um, citizenship test. And people started applauding because they were really proud that I was doing this. And then I had to go back and tell them I didn't pass. No. <laughs> so. Wrong wrong name of the country. Yeah, I had to study something new. Yeah. So you did some immigration law mm -hmm. after you became a lawyer. Yeah. Serving which communities? Um, it was um, the Mexican – well, the Mexican community um, – there was uh, a period where there was an amnesty given to Mexican immigrants that had been in the U.S. over 10 years and had paid their taxes, um, done everything legally. So I helped them through the process of getting citizenship. Well, actually, they would get residence first, legal residence. Right. So it sounds like your path to citizenship was pretty straightforward, aside mm -hmm. from that one yeah, that little glitch. fail. Yeah. Right. Uh, but it's complicated for so many people. It's gotten – it's very different now. So, yeah, my path back then was – it was in the um, early 90s um, – was really straightforward. But now it's – it's takes – you know, I've heard something like a decade. There's um, one person that's been tr uh, trying for over 10 years to get it. It's been really difficult for a lot of people, yeah, especially people from Muslim countries. And that was one of the issues they had with um, – Trump, when he was president, is he, he was making it really difficult for people to get citizenship. Yeah. You went into patent law mm -hmm. and wrote software for yeah. patent attorneys. Mm -hmm. And you wound up selling off that company. Mm -hmm. And what led you in 2014 to say – so you're living in California at this point as an American citizen. Right to say, I want to open up an animal rescue in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. Why? 
I'm not good with money. <laughs> so I, I had a suitcase full of money, and I wanted to know what to do with it. And I lived comfortably enough. I don't need a lot for my own uh, happiness. So I thought, what could I do for the people that didn't have all these opportunities I had? You know, that if I had been born, if my father had taken a left turn instead of a right turn, we could have ended up in a refugee camp. So I, I was thinking, what can I do to help the Palestinians, people that were like myself but just had a different fortune? Um, and so I went back. I went back to Palestine. I said, you know, and I looked around. I thought, what could I do to help the people here? And, you know, the obvious answer, I mean, everybody I asked would say, you know, you need, there's all these charities, give money to charities. Um, for example, the United Nations uh, provides a lot of food for the refugee camps. But I didn't think lack of food was the biggest problem they had. I thought everybody had enough food. They weren't living like kings, but they had enough food. They had enough shelter, nothing fancy, but that wasn't the core of what I thought was the big problem. What I felt was the biggest problem was the culture had been undermined because the Palestinian culture is a very uh, giving culture, um, very generous culture. And, and I saw them being more taking than, they, than I'm used to seeing them. I saw them behaving as if you know, whoever's toughest um, wins. And I, I, I didn't like that. I, I wanted to see, is there a way to get back to what I was more used to in that culture? So you felt it, that the tone of the, the people, the community had changed. Mm -hmm. You felt it used to be something else when you would visit as a kid in the summers, yeah. and it had substantially changed. It, it was almost magical how under so much stress... Uh, under Israeli occupation, how the people stuck together and helped each other out. And all of a sudden, after years and years of this military occupation, I felt that some of that um, sense of hierarchy seeped into the Palestinian culture, that somebody's got the power and somebody doesn't, and whoever has the power, they get to call the shots. And so how was an animal rescue going to help change that? I'm not sure if this was the specific reason, but I, I remember reading uh, Mahatma Gandhi said, um, the way you measure a society is how they treat their, the weakest in the society. And so I said, well, that's how I want to measure societies. You know, it's easy for you to be nice to powerful people, but how do you treat the people that have no power? And so I looked around and I said, the, the ones with the least power are the dogs in the street the donkeys being beaten every day. Those are the ones that I need to show people that even though I have power over these animals, I want to treat them well. And I was hoping that would spread into how they treat all people that are less powerful than they are. Because you see a correlation between how people treat animals and how they treat each other. It's a way of life. It's like, do you, do you want to get by in life by using your power or by treating your power as a sense of responsibility to help those who have less power. This wasn't easy, partly because a lot of the dogs that you were rescuing, you were rescuing dogs and, and donkeys. Mm -hmm. These were street dogs who'd been already abused. Kids would throw rocks at them for entertainment. It was horrific. Yeah. yeah. 
And so how did you, did you worry that you were going to be getting these ferocious animals because they'd been so abused? I don't know that I was worried about it. I, I took it into account, but it's not what happened. What um, happened? What happened was these animals were phenomenally grateful. Is when, when we would rescue them from literally being beaten, having rocks thrown at them, they'd be petrified. And then when they realized we were there to help them, they wouldn't leave us alone. They would just lick us whenever they saw us. They'd follow us around everywhere. Out of the 65 dogs I mentioned, I would say maybe three or four dogs still have PTSD and fear humans that we feed them. We try to make their life comfortable, but we don't interact with them. But the rest of them just can't wait to, to give us kisses every day. Now, there, it's, of course, this isn't happening now, but you started bringing kids into this animal sanctuary. What, what happened when you first brought kids in? Well, that was the original intent, right? It was to not just rescue animals. It was to change the culture. And, and obviously, it's harder to change the minds of adults who you know, have their pretty, they're pretty set in their ways. So we started bringing in like kindergartens. We had one kindergarten that had about 100 kids in it. Busloads of kids came. And so I greeted them. We built a little playground for them with some slides and um, a, a thing to climb on. And uh, I said, who wants to play with the animals? Because we had um, the dogs prepared. We had a few dogs that were super friendly, but we knew we you know, would have no problems no matter what the kids did. So we had them in a little pen ready for them to come play with them. And then we had the playground. I said, you know, we'll split them up. Some people will play in the playground, and the rest of them will have them see, play with the animals. So when, when I told them, you know, who wants to do what, all of them said they wanted to play in the playground. Nobody wanted to play with the animals because to them, these were dirty street dogs. These kids weren't used to thinking about dogs as playmates. Not in the least. Not in the least. They, they were just dirty, dirty animals. Yeah. And so then, so how did you introduce a kid to the animal? How did this right. happen? So. So I, I, I wasn't going to force them. So they, they all started playing in the swings and having a good time. And I saw one child, a boy, who was just watching them on the, out, on the outside of the group. He was just sort of watching everybody uh, play on the slide. So I just took him by the hand. I said, hey, you want to come with me to play with uh, dogs and donkeys? And he was just happy to get attention from anybody. So he said, sure, let's go. So I took him to see the dogs. First, um, we had a, a pen for the dogs and one for the donkeys set up. And so um, I took him over there and I said, um, you know, give me your hand. Let's touch the dog. Um, so he was like from a distance. I was, it was just like a, his hand was like two feet away from his body. He was just that petrified because he wasn't sure. He'd never touched a dog before. I don't think any child had. Um, and so we just barely touched the dog. And he'd like be looking away, and then he saw that nothing bad. It felt good, so he 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 started to relax a little bit, and so we started petting the dog, and I saw him every moment he'd get more and more relaxed, and then I looked up and there was like twenty kids on the other side of the fence just watching us, not un believing what they were seeing. They'd never seen anybody interact with a dog like that. And so, did you let the other kids in then? I had no choice. They were all <laughs> clamoring. They were literally climbing the fence saying they wanted to pet the dog. And so one by – and all of them said that when they're in the, outside of the fence. When they got inside, they all got scared again because that's how they're brought up. But they were just all lined up. They all wanted to play with the dogs. I and mean, that became like a fun thing for them to do. It just shows how easy it is 
to get past these these um, preconceptions, um, especially as a child. It's just some basic interaction with the other can easily break these these uh, walls they had between them. Now, obviously, so COVID happened, and and that kind of interaction had to stop. Mm-hmm. You haven't gotten back to that yet, and you are working on you're working with the SPCA yeah. to bring the dogs to the United States. Where are they going to go? Um, yeah, so just to explain why we're evacuating them, the reason we're having to evacuate them now is, like you said, COVID happened so that children no longer are coming to play with the animals, and I can't go back. Um, it's hard for me to go back. Um, for whatever reason, Israel doesn't like me going back, so I tried. To, out of the last three times I tried to go back, two times they wouldn't allow me in the country. So I'd go to Ben-Gurion Airport and they'd send me back. So it became a situation now with all this conflict that's going on, I have to manage from a distance. It's getting harder and harder to do it. So I have no control. The only people managing it, I have three people hired to manage it, but they don't really know much about dogs. They're just employees. They do what I tell them. Uh, so it's hard for us to keep the quality of life that I want them to have. They don't care about the dogs as much as you do. They're, they're getting there. They're getting better, but they're it's not... They're learning. They are. Yeah, they, um, the, the one main manager, Osama, um, he had no interest in dogs whatsoever. That all changed when his daughter, he brought his daughter once to work, and she fell in love with this uh, mixed German shepherd that we had. And when he saw how happy that made his child, that made him happy, and now he started to like dogs a lot more. But it, it's not internalized. So... Um, he doesn't really have the same standards that I have for animals. Uh, so so with, the SPCA is helping you yeah, bring so, them back here. So, you know, I came up with this um, plan um, to evacuate them, but it was just so daunting. I didn't know how we were going to get 65 dogs out. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I gave a call to the SPCA. Um, uh, some, a resident of Wilmington I met suggested I call somebody she knew. And in the SPCA, and they they arranged it. And they said, "We'll help you out." They they had previously um, had a project where they evacuated the dogs from Afghanistan and Iraq, so they were already familiar with evacuating dogs from war zones. And they said, "Sure, we can do it. It's not going to be easy, but we can do it." And where are the dogs going to go? Do you know yet? We're working on it. So that we want. There's lots of people that want to adopt these dogs. Um, the SPCA said, SPCA International, I think that may be different than the national one. They said when they evacuated the dogs from Iraq and Afghanistan, they had pages and pages of people that wanted to adopt their dogs. So you might be taking a few yourself. About 10 of them, if I can. <laughs> You're listening to Coastline. We're talking with Palestinian-American Mad Abu Ghazala about Palestinian culture, his life in the United States, why he started an animal rescue in the West Bank. And after this short break, we'll learn more about his congressional campaign in 2002. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. When terrorists attacked the United States on September 11, 2001, Maud Abu Ghazala, a Palestinian-American citizen, decided to run for a congressional seat in California. If a political campaign with a third-party candidate could go viral back then. Maude says that's exactly what happened. Today, he's a Wilmington resident who is working to bring the dogs he rescued from the streets in the West Bank to the United States with the help of the SPCA. And he says he hopes to bring 10 of them into his own home here in Wilmington. You were living in the Bay Area on September 11th, 2001. What do you remember about that day? It changed the world. I mean, everything that we knew, we no longer knew on September 11. It, we had to become different people, and we had to evaluate what our values were uh, because it was time to really look at what your priorities were. I'm not just talking about Arabs and Muslims, but everybody in, in America, at least, had to rethink what the meaning of their life was. When that happened... How long did it take for you to figure out that Muslim Americans were going to start having an issue with other Americans in terms of the fear around that and the lack of understanding and and Muslim Americans feeling like they had to, you said some were even changing their names, trying Mm -hmm. to hide their their own heritage. When did you realize that that was... It took seconds. I mean, as soon as um, we're like everybody that I knew, I was political at that point. I was part of the anti-discrimination committee, Arab American anti-discrimination. So we're already involved with that concept. And we're all just saying, I hope it's not Muslims. And when it was, we said, all right, we we now have um, our next few months ahead of us booked. This is what we're going to be doing for the next few months. And so... Describe your reasons for launching a campaign for a congressional seat in mm-hmm. California's 12th district. So originally it was just um, damage control, is to make sure that um, our, the Arab and, and Muslim communities felt safe and um, got what they needed to survive um, because there was a lot of backlash against Arab and, Arabs and Muslims. Um, speaking Arabic in public would be something that would be reported. It's like they would call up and saying, oh, we saw these two people speaking Arabic. That's a reportable offense. People were so scared back then, um, in a sense, overreacting. Um, but it was, it was to me, I, I, because I grew up in this little American compound, as opposed to the people that I was associating with um, in the Arab and Muslim community who were immigrants without that background, I had complete confidence in the American people, that um, there would be some very isolated incidents, but I was convinced that laying low was the opposite of what you needed to do. And that was what the message was by the mainstream Arab and Muslim organizations, was, you know, let's lay low and let this pass, and then, you know, we all wear baseball hats and wave the flag and just fit in. And that was the message. And I thought that was exactly the wrong message, that um, Americas l- would lose when cultures that are within our borders just become vanilla. 
and just melt in with the rest of the cultures, America loses. Because what I felt America, America's greatness was, was the ability to have all these different inputs from different sources from around the world and taking the best of everything and appreciating, not just tolerating, but actually appreciating all the wonderful things that different cultures had. And if the message was to just, you know, um, ignore your contribution to America, don't contribute to America culturally, just live here as everybody else, then I thought, what's the point of being here? I mean, is it just money? So it was, I, I had confidence in the American people that if, if somebody stood up and said, I'm Muslim, I'm Arab, I had nothing to do with 9-11, and here's my perspective. I had confidence that people would let me speak and they'd want to hear it. And so I wanted to give that message to my own community, and I wanted to you know, tell the American people, you know, that you believe in, in diversity, prove it, you know, and they did. Um, a lot of people voted for me more than any other third party uh, candidate in a um, contested race. This was, so this is the 2002 election, mm -hmm. and you were running as a libertarian at yeah. the time. So I think the incumbent Democrat uh, got, uh, was reelected. Mm -hmm. uh, the Republican challenger got 25% of the vote, and you got 7%, mm -hmm. which is quite respectable for a third-party candidate who has no political background. Yeah, I wanted to win. So I thought it was, <laughs> how could I only get 7%? But then I looked back at it, and third parties never get more than 4%. Ralph Nader got, I think, 2%. Um, so it was a success. I didn't accept it as one. I wanted, I wanted to win. But it was... Um, yeah, it, what was interesting to me is who voted for me um, as much as, as how many people voted for me. The, the person I was running against, the incumbent, had been in Congress uh, for about 20 years. Um, his name was Tom Lantos. He was the only Holocaust survivor, I think, to ever serve in Congress. He was certainly the only Holocaust survivor at that time to serve in Congress, um, the mouthpiece of Israel. So that was what made it go viral um, 2000 era viral, which wasn't as viral as things go now, is the fact that it was a Palestinian American running against a Holocaust survivor, myself running on an anti-war platform. He was very pro-war. He was uh, the Republicans chose him as a Democrat to lead the debate to invade Iraq. Can you understand now? It's interesting because uh, the Pew Research Center did a, sort of a 20 year look back at because America launched its military operation, I think, in 2003. Mm -hmm. So it's been 20 years. And in 2019, Pew Research found that a majority of Americans, including military veterans, had a pretty dim view of, of going to war. But at the time, mm -hmm. back in 2003, 2002, 2003, it was widely supported by Americans. So the, mm -hmm. so the view has really shifted over time among yeah. the majority. Mm -hmm. Why were you so against the war back then? Why were you not with the majority of Americans, feeling that that was the right thing to do? Um, my cynicism of governments, 
um, and what they say, which I was surprised at how willing people in America were to accept the word of the government. Um, and which we've since found out was actually not right. accurate. There, mm-hmm. They did not find weapons of mass destruction, which was one of the major pillars, to f- the argument for yeah, this and, war. And, um, Iraqis throwing babies out of incubators was a made-up story. Um, so there, there were a lot of made-up stories that I was very cynical about all along. And I wa- it wasn't like I was the only one. Um, in San Francisco, there was a rally of over 100,000 people against the war. Um, but yeah, it's it's from that cynicism about what the government says that I was really surprised um, that Americans just accepted it without questioning. I didn't expect that. I thought Americans were more cynical of what their government said because in general, people understand politics is is a dirty business. That there's um, a lot of corruption in in the government. That's generally accepted. So I was surprised that at this time they were willing to just take whatever the government said as being true. Yeah, and we've also learned since I think um, President Bush at the time was pointing to the case for a link between Saddam Hussein and Al Qaeda, right. and nobody's ever been able to draw that definitive. It's bizarre link. to me. It's like how did we end up? Invading, there was no reason whatsoever to invade Iraq after 9/11. There was no connection whatsoever, but it was part of a plan the government had to redraw the map of the Middle East in a way that's more suitable for, you know, the the War Department, I guess, for um, the military-industrial complex uh, to invade Iraq. But it it was just an excuse. There was no actual reason to invade Iraq at the time. So after. The 2002 campaign and the incumbent Tom Lantos was reelected. You decided to run again in 2004 as a Democrat. Yeah. So directly challenging Tom Lantos. I, I wanted to find a way to change the direction of the country because I, I, my vision of America was very different than the path I saw it headed towards. I, I really believed growing up in Saudi Arabia, looking at America from a distance, that America is the place where – freedom matters, where the individual matters, where um, you treat people based on what they do, not what group they belong to. All that stuff really meant a lot to me. And um, it didn't seem like that's the direction we were headed after 9-11. And so I, I wanted to fight it. And I, I, didn't, and I didn't want a moral victory. I wanted to see how do I actually change the direction of the country. You said something to ABC's Alina Cho, who interviewed you at the time, about this country has to make a decision about the kind of country it wants to be. Mm-hmm. And you, that's really what your campaign was about. Yeah. I, so, I made it like a referendum. Um, do, you, do you want to invade Iraq? Do you want to um, su- suppress individual liberties? Or do you want to have freedom? Now, you moved to Wilmington. Mm-hmm. in 2023, in August of 2023. Why? Mm-hmm. It's so different from the other places that you've lived. What what brought you here? It was a process that I went through. So Silicon Valley was my dream for the longest time. And I made it there. I was successful there. But at the same time I was doing that, I was also starting my sanctuary in a very rural area in Palestine. It was um, olive trees. That's all there were there. Um, whereas my family was from Nablus, which, as you were saying, is the biggest city in, in, in Palestine. And so 
the, my process of living in, in rural Palestine made me recognize what was really important, which was um, you know this fast-paced, technology-driven life that's pushing people to go 50 miles an hour, 100 miles an hour in their life in the cities wasn't all that it was cut out to be. It's not all about buying things and consuming things. That this very simple life I was leading in this rural town village in Palestine made me just appreciate the sunrise, made me appreciate a good meal with friends, which would never happen in the big cities. And so that mentality changed me, or that experience changed me. It changed my mentality. And I just adapted that when I came to the U.S. I said, you know, if, if this little village of Asira, which is where my sanctuary is, gives me so much more happiness than this big, um, loud, smelly town of Nablus. I don't want to say that, that it was that bad. It was. It, I'm just exaggerating what it was like. But it's where you get your grandfather's idea. house is. Yeah, there's some beautiful, and there's many beautiful things in Nablus. Um, um, but anyway, so but you get the idea. There's a big city versus you know living in the countryside. So I said, well, let me do the same in the U.S. So that's why I pulled up uh, my tent in in Silicon Valley and said, okay, what is I want the most charming place in America that really appreciates you know uh, relationships, uh, saying hi that you um you know not just telling people what you want but getting to know people. Um, and you know, I, I looked at the uh, South, like Texas, Arizona, and it, it just didn't really resonate with me. It didn't seem to have the charm. It, it had a lot of Southern like accents and stuff, but <laughs> I was missing that charm that I was hoping for. Texas doesn't have that. Now, talk a little bit about the culture that you say is uniquely Palestinian because you're starting a food truck and we just have a couple of minutes left. What are some of the elements of Palestinian culture, some of the hallmarks that that are Palestinian to you? Number one has to be generosity. Um, When it comes to food, if they have no food in their cupboard and they have a guest, they'll find some. That, that um, sharing meals with people is paramount to Palestinians. Um, and so it's part of their identity. And that's why I get so upset, and you'll probably see this if you've talked to many Palestinians, when everybody says Hamas is Greek or something, when it's offensive to me because, you know, Palestinians have so many bad things associated with them. We finally did something right. <laughs> we finally have something that everybody loves. And we don't get credit for it. But hummus is um, an Arabic word meaning garbanzo beans. So there's no question the origin of hummus. It's it's an Arab dish. And so that's part of the reason I want to start this food truck is so people know hummus is Palestinian. Okay. <laughs> I know some Israelis who might argue with that. But, yeah. I, yeah. What is your wish for the Israeli citizens and the Palestinian citizens right well, now? I want them to feel that they're home. When so you know this concept of you know should it be a one state solution or a two state solution, I want them to feel that where they're living is their home. Israelis and Palestinians. Yeah. So I know for a lot of people, um, Jewish Americans, they said when they went to Israel, it was the first time they felt they were home because they were around people like themselves. Uh, so I respect that. I respect that there is a history, a Jewish history there. But you also have to recognize the Palestinians have been there thousands of years. 
And they have, if nothing else, they have property rights. They've built these farms and homes and everything that they've been kicked out of. So I'd, I'd love for both sides to contribute to a, a joint culture, a new joint culture of, of Israel and Palestine. And that's this edition of Coastline. Mad Abu Ghazala, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks also to Roger Cook. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. You can find this episode at whqr.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Coastline.